We have now come to another Passover season, and in the past year, God has been so very good to uh, all of us. You know, God provided His commandments in order that we might know right from wrong. I think it's really wonderful that God has informed man in order that we can understand that to take a man's life from him is an error in thinking and conduct That is, murder is not good. And I think it's wonderful that God has instructed man that it's unfair to take without permission the property of another man. That is, to steal. And I think it's very wonderful that God has shown us that we must respect our father and our mother and, of course, also our heavenly father. Of course, the command that he gave was, you shall have no other gods before me, and also honor your father and your mother. And how wonderful that God has shown that that he has given man one day in seven to be free from labor and from stress from our everyday life. He called it the Sabbath. And how wonderful that God has established limits to which neighbor can go in matters pertaining to another man's wife and daughter. That is, you shall not commit adultery uh, with the attendant instruction concerning forcible rape and so on. How wonderful it is that we have such a great God who thought out and who explained in very simple words, very simple terms, the principles which govern human relationships and which make for a peaceful society. How wonderful it is that God has given us a clear and accurate written record of the examples of those in history who violated those wonderful laws, the Ten Commandments. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9, that we're not to tempt Christ as some, speaking of our forefathers, our ancestors, and those uh, who have gone before us, ancient Israel, we are not to tempt God as some of them tempted him and were destroyed by serpents and on other occasions by other means. Let's go back to Numbers chapter 14, and let's review today a few of the examples which have been written for our learning and for our understanding, for our exhortation and for our good. In Numbers 13, we have the account from uh, the 12 spies who went into the land of Canaan to spy out the land, to see what was there and to uh, evaluate the situation. And they came back and they reported that it was a land flowing with milk and honey, a very rich land. However, there was a slight problem. The problem was that the people who inhabited that land were big guys. They were big men. And uh, to us, uh, big uh, and uh, compared to them might be somewhat different, but uh, in their day they were head and shoulders above most of those who were children of Israel, big men. And when they reported the conditions, the people began to uh, become agitated and they started complaining and... Uh, They were very, very, very upset. Verse 1 of chapter 14, Numbers 14, verse 1, we read, And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, because Moses and Aaron were the two principals involved uh, who were responsible for the oversight of the people of Israel. They said, Would God that we had died 
in the land of Egypt? Or would God, we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore, why, has the Eternal brought us unto this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another. They were kibitzing over the uh, uh, fence, as it were. Let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. Let's choose a leader. Let's choose someone who can take us back into Egypt. And then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the, of the congregation of the children of Israel. Moses and Aaron were very humble men. Moses was the meekest man on earth, according to one scripture, a very meek man. And so they fell on their faces before God and before the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel out of concern for what they were hearing. Verse 6 says, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. Two of the twelve spies were themselves very concerned about the attitude they saw in the multitude of the people. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Verse 9, Only rebel not you against the eternal, neither fear you the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. They said, no, stone these men, because they want to take us into this land where we will be bred for those giants that inhabit the land. Continuing verse 10, And the glory of the Eternal appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, verse 11, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be before they believe me for all the signs which I have shown among them? Now understand, God had delivered them from Egypt. He had taken them across the Red Sea. The Egyptian army sent out to destroy them had been itself destroyed. They witnessed that. They saw the bodies of those who were destroyed and all the debris that floated up after that incident. They had also seen other miracles God had performed in giving them water, providing them with sweet water, good water, and other provisions that he had made for them. Verse 13, And Moses said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians, no, I'm sorry, uh, beginning in verse 11, after they had, he had said, I have shown you these, he said, verse 12, I will smite them, these people, the children of Israel, with the pestilence, and disinherit them, and will make it of them, a, our view rather, Moses, a greater nation and mightier than they. So God would have, could have taken of Moses one man and made him and his children into a nation even greater and mightier than the children of Israel. And he could still have fulfilled his agreement and his covenant with Abraham thereby. Verse 13, though, Moses said unto the Lord, If you do that, then the Egyptians shall hear it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. 
For they, the inhabitants of the land, have heard you, are the eternal, are among this people, that you, eternal, are seen face to face, and that your cloud stands over them, and that you go before them by day in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you shall kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of you will speak, saying, Because the Eternal was not able to bring this people into the land which he sware unto them, therefore he has slain them in the wilderness. And now I beseech you, let the power of my Lord be great, according as you have spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech you, the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of your mercy, and as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And verse 20, And the Eternal said, I have pardoned according to your word. But, of course, <clears throat> there were some consequences which uh, flowed from that. The point that is important for us, I think, to understand in this is found now in verses 21 and verse 22. Verse 21, But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the eternal. There will be no exclusiveness, all of the earth will be filled with the glory of the eternal. God's name is not going to be besmirched. Verse 22, Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted me now these ten times and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land where I swear, which I swear unto their fathers, Neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. And so God made a decision. He made a decree that those individuals who were responsible would fall, would die before the entrance of the nation into the land of Canaan, before the inheritance. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 1, Remember that Numbers is, in effect, a <clears throat> logical accounting of the events of uh, the children of Israel, whereas Deuteronomy is the recap after 40 years, virtually, of the wandering and <clears throat> after so many of those people had fallen. <clears throat> in Deuteronomy chapter 1, <clears throat> in uh, a recap. Let's begin in verse, uh, verse, um, oh, let's start with, the, try to get the context here. Um, in verse 26, after he had spoken of how they were to go into the land, and uh, he gave them, offered them this good land, verse 25, verse 26, notwithstanding, you would not go up, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God. Same time, as it were, as we were reading in, in Numbers chapter 14, uh, the tame, same time setting. So he's recapping those events. Verse 27, And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Whither shall we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, This people, or the people, is greater and taller than we. The cities are great and walled up to heaven. And moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. And then I said unto you, Dread not, neither be afraid of them. The Lord your God, which goes before you, shall fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes." And in the wilderness, where you have seen how that the Lord your God bare you as a man doth bear his son, 
in all the way that you went until you came into this place. Yet, in this thing you did not believe the Lord your God, who went in the way before you to search you out a place to pitch your tents in, to live to uh, in fire by night to show you by what way you should go, and in a cloud by day. And the Lord heard the voice of your words and was angry and swear, Surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation see that good land which I swear to give unto their fathers. Save Caleb the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it, and to him will I give the land that he has trodden upon, and to his children, because he hath wholly followed the eternal. Also the Lord was angry with me, Moses wrote, for your sake, saying, You also shall not go in there. But Joshua, the son of Nun, which stands before you, he shall go in thither, encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. So God made some decisions concerning the entrance into the land based upon actions, based upon the conduct of the people. And these examples are written for our learning, for our admonition. For our understanding. In Hebrews chapter 3 verse 17. In the New Testament. The Apostle Paul said that. Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Hebrews 3 verse 17. With whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? Whose corpses fell in the wilderness? So for 40 years. There was a very bad relationship between God and the children of Israel, unfortunately. And God, time after time, forgave rather than to destroy. But these lessons are written for our learning, for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the earth or the world are come. Verse 18, Hebrews 3, verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter into his rest, but to those who did not obey? Those who did not obey did not enter into the rest. Again, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 9, he said, Your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Now, I've heard some state, quote, but the Old Testament examples are of people who did not have God's Spirit. They could not do any better because they did not have God's Spirit. And then they had have gone on and said, we, but we have God's Spirit. We are begotten of God or born again, as some believe, as if by virtue of the begettal and having the Spirit of God, we automatically would not do what our forefathers did. But let's take a look at church history and let's understand if this is true. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, dealing with the church at Corinth, starts out trying to be and being actually very uh, understanding and patient and considerate of the uh, the brethren and that that church that congregation uh, as he introduces the the, uh, the the letter he speaks of himself as an, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified or set apart for holy use in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, their Lord, their Savior, and ours, along with all who in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ. You know, the Apostle Paul was not an exclusionist. The Apostle Paul was inclusive. The Apostle Paul was not 
excluding individuals in other places who called upon the name of Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. He said, I thank God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given to you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance, that in all knowledge and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul is introducing the letter to this church this way because, again, there is a natural inclination either of feeling superior or inferior. In this particular case, he is trying to elevate them in their thinking and help them to understand they were not inferior in as far as Christ and the gospel is concerned. He was an apostle, as was Peter and James and John and all the others. But he did have a problem, and let's pick it up in verse 10. <clears throat> now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now, I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Obviously not. Verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know, do not know whether I baptized any other. I mean, it was not a big deal. It was not that important to him whether he physically baptized an individual or not. But yet some people who were baptized by this man or that man or another person may have assumed and felt and believed that because they were baptized by Peter. They were baptized by John. They were baptized by another of the apostles. They were, in fact, superior to those who were baptized by Paul, who was a Johnny-come-lately. Some may have felt superior because they had been baptized by the apostle Paul as opposed to one of the other apostles or one of the other ministers at Corinth but not so in God's sight. And Paul also felt the same way. Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, that is, to physically immerse people, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. The message and the suffering of Christ would be of no effect. For the message of the cross, or the message of the death of Christ, his sacrifice for us is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. By the way, I'm reading from the New King James Version here, rather than the King James Version, and it's valid. It is properly rendered. Christ, he said, for it is written, verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent so-called. I added the word so-called, the expression. Verse 20, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through wisdom, did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached 
to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign. It was the nature of the people of Judah to request a sign. And Greeks seek after wisdom. This is the nature, the education, cultural background of the Greeks to seek after wisdom. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. And to the Jews, that's a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, it's foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. They understand. They see Christ as the power of God. And they see him and his message as the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us a wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. That is, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the eternal. You know, today the church of God is smitten with division and dissension like perhaps never since the early apostolic age ended. Nothing new. You know, at the end of his ministry, Jesus saw carnality in his disciples. As he was approaching Jerusalem near the end of his life, the disciples were arguing, they were disputing among themselves who would be the greatest, who was the greatest, and they were jockeying for position. Of course, they had not yet received the Holy Spirit as a begettle. Yes, that is true. But they had God's Spirit with them, and they had the Savior. They had the example. They had the words of Jesus Christ for three and one-half years, almost night and day with him. And yet, they exemplified extreme carnality. In John 13, 35, Jesus felt compelled to tell them, By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. And the reason he said that is because they didn't. Some of them didn't like each other, apparently. I kind of think that is true today of the disciples of Christ and of individuals and of leaders here and there in the church of God. Individuals who undoubtedly have received the Spirit of God, the begettle of God. And we don't all like each other. John 17, verse 23 Christ said to the Father in his prayer, his objective is I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. The objective of Christ was that the spirit and the attitude, the mind he had and the relationship he had with the Father would be in us or would be in them, and later in us. After the crucifixion, a profound change occurred when the Holy Spirit was given. Initially, in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, we find that the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own but they, all, they had all things in common. A profound change in attitude from the attitude near the end of the ministry of Christ. Now let's drop down to <clears throat> a later time. 
many years later, when the Apostle Paul was beginning to interact and to deal with the church, little fledgling church, I take it, at Rome. Understand that Rome at that time had the highest civilization on earth. Rome was the aristocratic city, <clears throat> capital, if you please, of the world, of that world. And the church of Rome, we have to accept this, was composed of converted people who had God's spirit. But they did have problems. Romans chapter 12. Let's go back and review Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says, I beg you. That's what the word beseech means in the King James English. I beseech or beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. Again, the highest civilization of that age, of that time, where these people lived, Rome. And he is saying, do not conform to this civilization, this culture, if you please, especially spiritual and intellectual culture. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, verse 5, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. And yet they had problems. They had difficulties. They had contention in, in this church, as they did in the church at Corinth. Verse 6, <clears throat> Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering as, or he that teaches on teaching, or he that exhorts on exhortation, he that gives, let him do it with simplicity, he that rules with diligence, he that shows mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without dissimulation, and abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints given to hospitality. Verse 14. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Conversely, be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. And if it be possible, verse 18... As much as lies in you, or that is in your power, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourself, but rather give place under wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, verse 20, if your enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, you shall heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the church at Rome had individuals who were weak 
and individuals who were strong. And he told those who were strong to bear with those who were weak. And if some did not believe it was proper or acceptable to eat meat or uh, eat meat on a given day or to drink wine or any number of physical things, the Apostle Paul taught they should be tolerant of one another, bear with one another, strengthen one another, and... In his own example, by his own case, in his own case, by his own example, he said, I will not eat meat so long as the world stand if it will offend my brother. Now, obviously, if he was not in the presence of that brother, if he was in another community, another area, the Apostle Paul, I am sure, ate meat. But what he is saying is, right in front of that man, I won't do that. Unity of mind. Paul begged that church to be unified in mind, in spirit. Have one mind and have one attitude. In Romans chapter 15, verse 5, in concluding this letter, he said, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Jesus Christ Verse 6, that you be, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse, chapter 16, verse 17, he concluding, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. It's understood that there are some who will cause divisions and offenses. And it is also imperative and understood, I think, that if offense and if division is being stirred up by one individual in a group or in the church, others are wise and are counseled by the Apostle Paul and by us to avoid them. In some cases, we have no alternative, but to take note of them officially as a church, to mark them because of the division which they are causing. And so the highest civilization, culture at that time, Rome, had some problems within the church, some division, some difficulties, as did the church at Corinth. At Corinth, there was a picking and choosing among the brethren of ones they wished to champion and follow. And of course, the Apostle Paul took great umbrage at that. Even if they chose him, he objected to that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, in his second letter to the church at Corinth later, the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, says, Finally, brethren, farewell, become complete, be of good courage or comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. This is after his second letter to them, which was a corrective letter. The Apostle Paul loved these people. He worked with these people day and night. The Apostle Paul served and worked for them. And yet, they had problems. The church had problems in the days of the apostles, the apostolic age. And it seems as the church grew and and spread into other areas outside of Jerusalem. And as time went on, and hopes were deferred or delayed, fulfillment of of hopes was deferred, then more and more of the human problems, the carnal problems, began to crop up. In Asia Minor, one of the leading cities at that time was Ephesus. It was a very pleasant city, I understand in those days. 
At Ephesus, Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which with which you were called. That is, to endure and to, to do it. Verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It takes effort, it takes work, it takes attention to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. But, okay, that's, that's the ideal. That is the truth. There is one God and Father of all, above all, even above Jesus Christ, the Son, and through all, and in you all, by the Spirit of God. But, but, verse 7, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. That is, God has given each of us a special treasure, a special gift, a special blessing. Let's appreciate it. Paul is encouraging, he is admonishing them to appreciate the grace which has been given according to the measure of Christ and his gifts. And verse 31, Ephesians 4, verse 31, he said, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Can we do that during this Passover season? Can we be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forbearing, forgiving one another, just as we have been forgiven by Christ? To the church at Philippi, Paul wrote, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, Philippians 1.27, so that whether I come and see you and, or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Why did he say that? Because they were in danger of division, dissension, separation. They were having the same age-old problem that the church of God and people and whatever organized group always have to contend with. That is, this, this tendency to separate and to disintegrate and to create dissension. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul wrote, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. The objective, the ideal is to be like-minded, have one spirit, one attitude, and that is an attitude of cooperation and of love. They didn't have it perfectly. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. He said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself or above let each of you, verse 4, Philippians 2, verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, so it's not wrong to look out for your own interests and needs, but also for the interests of others. Be watchful of the interest of others. Be concerned, he is saying. 
one for another. That's a fruit of the Spirit of God, having a genuine concern for other people. Philippians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul again says, To the degree, nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Some have attained a certain degree of growth and of stature and of fullness, as it were, in Christ, he is saying. And to that degree, let's walk by the same rule and let us be of the same mind. I used to have a professor and when I was many years ago. He taught mathematics and some other classes, civics and so on. This was in high school. <clears throat> He was a philosopher, and he was a politician, a uh, member of the state legislature. I remember a stump speech that he gave one time in which he judged and he explained how he evaluated individuals and, and needs and so on. And he said, I use the yardstick method. And then he explained how he would compare and if a situation was just so big, then the need could not be so so great. I mean, if if the situation or the need was small, well, then the help and the the support should be proportionate to the need. He also evaluated students the same way, to some degree. He gave credit to students of lesser ability if they put forth more effort then he rewarded him by grade accordingly. A wise man, a just man, a good man as far as those things go in the world. To Thessalonica, the church at Thessalonica, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 13, that we are to esteem very highly and love those who are serving in the work for their work's sake. And notice the next sentence. Be at peace among yourselves. We need to uh, understand at this time of the year that the lesson of the Old Testament church and the lesson of the New Testament church, those lessons are written for our learning and our admonition. We need to understand those lessons, and we need to see how they apply to us. Apparently, at Thessalonica, there were some who looked down upon some of those who were serving in the work. In this day and age, there are some who are serving very mightily in the work of God, who were not prepared specifically by education and training. They were not prepared for some of the positions they have been forced into and are fulfilling. But they're doing a good job within their means. And we need to understand and appreciate that and be at peace among ourselves that's the lesson for us to learn. At Jerusalem, now we've reviewed some of the conditions at Rome, in Asia, Asia Minor, Greece, in between. Now in Jerusalem, James was the apostle of the circumcision. And <clears throat> James in Jerusalem take it, the brother of Christ, wrote in chapter 3, verse 13. We'll start in verse 13. James 3, 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Uh, if an individual has seems to have wisdom and understanding, then he needs to produce by his good conduct, he needs to show that 
His works are done in the meekness and wisdom of wisdom. Verse 14, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. So the church, apparently, in Jerusalem and environs, had a problem. And I, I don't think James was writing this just, just without inspiration. There was cause for him to write these words. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and don't lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Ah, one wonders if where, the, where there is every evil thing and confusion, if perhaps if we take and start with the result and start looking at the result and then go back, perhaps we can find that it is envy and self-seeking which pro- produced the problem which we're faced with at the moment. For the wisdom that is from above is first pure and then peaceable, seeking peace and wanting to make peace, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality and without without hypocrisy. And the fruits of righteousness, he said, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, And so the example in the New Testament church, specifically the example of Jerusalem, is that there apparently were some who considered themselves to be wise. They had perhaps a greater amount of knowledge of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament Scripture, because they had been taught in synagogue. They had been reared on the Word of God in a way unlike the Gentile world where they... Never heard the truth of God, perhaps, in some among the Gentiles. In First Peter chapter three, verse eight, the apostle Peter, also the apostle to the dispersed, the dispersion. First Peter chapter three, verse eight. Peter wrote, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. So I take it that there was some kind of a problem with individuals lacking compassion for one another, lacking love as brothers, lacking the care and concern that they should have, lacking courtesy. Verse 9, not returning evil for evil, wow, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So when someone says something evil, someone reviles you or another person, then we need to uh, reciprocate with a blessing. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18. Paul wrote, For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. At Passover, at Corinth, There were problems with individuals getting drunk. There were problems with individuals not sharing. And so Paul had to write to them that there were divisions. And he knew it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25, he said, He is writing that there be no schism in the body, no split in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another, a genuine love and concern for one another.
Now, among believers, there are differences of opinions. And there always have been and always will be. In the days of Christ, there were those who, among the people, believed that he was the Messiah. And then there were others who believed that he was a prophet. And there were some who believed he was a good man, but there were others who thought he was a demon. There was division among the people. John chapter 7, verse 43 says, and in John chapter 9, verse 16, we read, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. And others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was some more division because some people looked at the fruit, others looked at the same fruit, and they saw a man, in their opinion, who was a sinner, a lawbreaker. In John chapter 10, verse 19, we read, Therefore, there was a division among the Jews because of these sayings because of what Jesus taught. So what he did, there were individuals who saw his signs, they saw what he did, and they took, they drew one conclusion. There were other individuals who saw the same incident, and they drew a totally different conclusion about him, about the person. There were people who heard what he taught and drew one conclusion, and there were others who heard what he taught, his sayings, and drew a diametrically opposite opinion or conclusion. Now, God has given us hearts to believe on Him, if we believe. And God has given us a will to obey Him, if we obey. God has given us the nature to doubt, if we doubt. And God has given us a nature to complain, if we complain. The question is, which will prevail. We alone determine. And who will judge? Christ will judge. And his judgment will be for eternity. Repeatedly, God has challenged man to prove me, as he said. Prove me. Too many have misunderstood God's statement, prove me, to mean test me. Now, there's a critical difference between proving God and testing God, between proving God by stepping out in obedience and trusting in Him and by testing Him and His patience and His mercy by disobedience. And the difference, of course, essentially starts in the attitude. The lessons of Israel are recorded for our learning and our admonition. We must heed them. What a wonderful God to give us examples to which we can look, by which we can draw conclusions which will help guide our lives so that we don't have to make all of the mistakes made by our forefathers and by men during the period of the Old Testament church or in the early apostolic days. We need to heed those lessons and learn from them. Jesus knew those lessons. He was taught those lessons from infancy. And by the Spirit of God, he recalled those lessons and internalized them and taught them and set an example by following them. He also promised to help us through the Holy Spirit to follow in his steps, and also to demonstrate that we learned by the examples, by the mistakes of others. And, of course, we can have the benefit if we do. David said in Psalm 133, verse 1, you know, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. How? When? Why? Well, only by the Spirit of God can we dwell together in unity. And only by the Spirit of Christ motivating us as prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 32, verse 39. Jeremiah said he was going to give us one heart. He said, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. It is for the, our good and for the good of our children that we learn 
really learn and internalize the lessons which were written for our learning and our admonition. In John 13, verse 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Is that new? After 3,000 years or more, after 4,000 years almost of of uh, man's history, a new commandment to love. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. How wonderful that God has given us written lessons to guide our lives. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful that God has given us all of those examples so that we do not have to make all of those mistakes, that we don't have to go as our forefathers, as the children of Israel, when tested by the world in that day, in that situation, of course, at the Red Sea, when tested there, that we don't have to go through that experience and make that mistake or the mistakes that they made ten times over testing God. What a wonderful God it is to have given us by example again and again and again examples which virtually cover every situation which we may enter into, every problem we may have to face, every trial and every test, every situation. There are biblical examples. Individuals have faced those before. There is nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said. There is nothing new under the sun. All of the tests and all the trials and all the problems which you face and which I face day by day have been met before, they have been faced before by those who have gone before us. And that is why those lessons have been written, so that we don't have to make those mistakes. We don't have to learn by those examples or or by those trials or make those mistakes and then have to suffer. I'm amazed at individuals who seem to find a need to repeat what their parents did, which brought so much anguish, heartache, and pain to their parents. I'm amazed. And yet, it is a, almost a rule that abused people are abusers of others. It's what they have seen, and as the old saying goes, monkey see, monkey do. As it's been done to me, I will do to others. It's almost like it's a script that is inscribed in the heart and the mind. And we have to overcome that. We have to change that script. We have to allow God to write a new script in our heart and in our minds. If our parents were alcoholic, or if our father was an abuser, if our father abused our mother, his wife, we ought to learn from that experience that that is a terrible way to live. It brings pain to first to that mate and secondly to all of those children. But no, even with the Spirit of God, without a great deal of effort to remain close to God and to walk by the same rule that Jesus Christ did. We repeat, it seems, again and again, those awful lessons written in pain, anguish, and even blood. We live in a society today, here at least in America and the United States, and I think it's true in other parts of the world. We live in a very angry society. We live in a a society 
where there's a, there's a great deal of violence, and some would have us legislate violence out of our society, can't be done. It cannot be done. It cannot be legislated away. The law of God, the law of God defines what is right and what is wrong. God gave us that as a blessing. But he can't, we, we cannot live by it unless we have the heart and the will to do so. That's why in prophecy, uh, the prophecy in Jeremiah is so very, very profound. Where he said, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me. I will write in them a new heart, a new script. Right now we're pioneers. In the church of God, the people of God who have the spirit of God and who yield to God and who exercise the spirit of God are pioneers. In living a new way by learning the examples by appreciating what God has done for us that has been so great and so wonderful and so good we too then with Jesus Christ will be able to reign and bring peace bring harmony bring compassion and justice to the world that is to come.